Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think what I found writing this book is that there are two answers to the question of where is home. One of them is a very long, complicated answer, and I I suppose this book is my attempt to offer that answer. And the other is a simple one, because most people, if you ask them where is home, can give you that answer in a sentence or in a word or a couple of words. And by the end of writing it, I suppose I've felt much more able to do that than I had in the past. If somebody asks me where is home, I will say Shetland. At the moment, I live in Glasgow, but if somebody asks me where is home, it's not Glasgow, it is Shetland. How do we know when we find our place in the world? Can a sense of belonging be defined? And does all geography begin in sight? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to travel across countries, cities and unique locations on the 68 parallel to unravel the meaning and value of home. This evening, I'm joined by writer, journalist and musician Malachi Talak, whose first book, 60 Degrees North, Around the World in Search of Home, unpacks the big questions in life and in doing so, takes the reader on a soulful and emotional journey from Shetland to Greenland, from Alaska to Siberia, from St. Petersburg to Finland, to Sweden and Norway, mixing psychogeography, memoir and cultural history. In 60 Degrees North, Maliki writes, people come to Alaska for many different reasons. In Ninilchik, they come to catch big fish, Other people travel to see wilderness, that vague, indefinable thing they feel is missing from their own lives. They come to experience nature, to gaze at it or move through it, and then to go home. There is a kind of nostalgia in this, a desire to return and to connect to something that is lost or in the process of being lost. It is a longing for the country's past, for an imagined American Eden, pre-Columbus and pre-Bearing. To visit the wilderness is to cross out of history and into the perpetual present. In Gary Snyder's words, a way of life attuned to the slower and steadier processes of nature. That crossing for some who come to live here represents freedom. It's a chance to escape from the rules and bureaucracy and from the noise and the muddle of the modern world. Some people come to Alaska because they dream of the place and the dream won't let them go. So what is placefulness? And is home a contradiction of the heart? Hello, I'm Malachi Talak. Uh, I'm a singer-songwriter and an author. I've um, just published a book called Undiscovered Islands, about islands once believed to be real but that are no longer on the map. And I previously published a book called 60 Degrees North. What a wonderful book, Malachi, 60 Degrees North. It's poetic in parts. It's very philosophical. There is superb cultural history in it. I might start with a big wide open question, if that's OK for you. Does landscape inhabit us in some way? Do you think landscape can be in, in one way central to our character and who and what we are or what we think? It can be, I think, particularly for people who live in in rural areas and in places where the climate and the landscape still impose themselves on 
your daily life, I suppose. So growing up in Shetland, of course, the landscape was a hugely important part of, of day-to-day life. And I think that over time, you, you develop a relationship with, with landscape and with place that can be very difficult to put into words, but is, it's a very interesting thing to explore nonetheless. Maliki, you described the 68 parallel as a kind of border where the almost north and the north comes together. And I think somewhere else you say the 68 parallel cannot be defined. So I'm just wondering about that, how you went about understanding it all. Well, it was a very gradual process, I suppose, through the, the process of, of travelling and, and kind of coming to an understanding of these places. I mean, the, the 60th parallel is an arbitrary line in a sense. It's a, a man-made creation. And yet, when you look at it on a map, it does seem in some ways to connect the two parts of the north together. So it runs along the very far south of some very northern places like Alaska and Greenland and the Nordic countries, and at the very far north of some more southerly places such as the British Isles. You write also that geography begins at the only point of which it can be certain. It begins in sight. Do you think in some way we're all looking, no matter whether we live in the in close to the Arctic Circle, whether it's London, New York, New Delhi, that we're all looking for a place of belonging and that that necessarily doesn't mean the place that we grew up in? I'm not sure that we all are. I think that a lot of people simply don't have much of a sense of attachment to place these days. I mean, it, capitalism in our modern day culture does not encourage a faithfulness to place. It doesn't encourage a deepened relationship with place. And perhaps a lot of people have a sense of missing something and they're not always quite sure what it is. And some people are lucky and they do find a strong connection with a particular place, which may not be the place that they grew up in or that they were born in. That's certainly the case for me. But a lot of people perhaps do feel that strong sense of connection with their home place, the place where they were born. But some people may never feel that um, longing, perhaps. And maybe they're lucky, I suppose. Yeah, you pitch up a very interesting question. You say, are you right? Can we ever truly be home? And home means so much, so many different things to so many different people, whether you come at it from a cultural, uh, spiritual, or even down to kind of um, genetic understanding of home. And it's not a given, sure it's not. No, absolutely not. And I think for a lot of people, home is simply where their family is or where their friends are, and where they make human connections but it can't be more complicated than that it, it can be much wider than that too I was describing 60 degrees north to one of my best friends and I was saying it's it's very much like this it's like that and I it was hard to actually say is the book a memoir is it about psychogeography or is it cultural history so how would you describe the book for anyone who hasn't read 60 degrees north well, I suppose, like lots of writers, I'm sort of resistant to the idea of putting it in any particular box or category. I mean, when I started out, I thought it was just going to be a travel book. That was it. I was satisfying a certain curiosity about the place where I lived. But as I traveled and as I wrote, 
it obviously grew into something different from that. So it has that element. Of course, I talk about the histories and the cultures of the places where I visit, but it does become more personal. It does become partly about me and my own relationship with my home, as well as other people's relationship with their home. So, yeah, I mean, travel, memoir, yes, but I'm sort of happy for it not to sit in any particular category at all. As I was charting the different countries and different towns that you're visiting in, it struck me, what would the world have been like if we didn't have maps? Because it's almost hard to understand, really, isn't it? When we think that in the 14th and 15th century, all these explorers are finding different parts of the world. Like if we look at Scandinavia and so on, how lots of different islands were not on the map even at some stage. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's very difficult to imagine ignorance, I suppose. That's the thing. You can't unimagine all the things that you already know. So that idea of exploring without knowing what's going to be there, it, it, it's very difficult for us now. But at, at the same time, even when you have a map, even when you've read lots of books about a particular place before you go there, you don't know how it's going to feel until you get there. And I think that sense of how a place feels was part of what I wanted to explore in the book. Yeah, you certainly can feel much off a map. And when you think about it, it is the lived experience when you travel to any given place. You bring up the writings of British poet and novelist Lawrence Durrell, and he developed the idea of the invisible constant. I suppose in essence, what he was saying there was a thread that holds the history of, the, of a place together. Do you believe in all of that, Maliki? <laughs> I find it fascinating, but it's kind of haunting as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And at a certain very basic degree, it's actually obvious. I mean, the climate and the landscape and the natural resources of a particular place absolutely shaped the kind of human cultures that developed there. Of course it did. It, it shaped the things that people ate and the way that they found their food. And that was true until relatively recently, I suppose. But part of what we've done since the Industrial Revolution really is to kind of push that aside. We no longer need to rely on the natural resources of our own area in the same way that we did before. We can find things from other places. And so we can ignore our places more than we ever could in the past. Now, Malachi, you travel from Shetland to Greenland to Canada, Alaska, Siberia, St. Petersburg, Finland, Sweden, and I think Norway. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> OK. Um, Greenland, your chapter on Greenland, I found fascinating. One of the things I hadn't realised is, and you, you mentioned it in the book, and, you know, we're living in the 21st century where we have Wi-Fi, uh, we're also connected. But in Greenland, there's no roads between uh, the communities. All public transport is by boat and helicopter. I was quite surprised by that, but I suppose the climate and the and the terrain is quite harsh, isn't it? Yeah, it it is, and there are very few roads outside of of towns. That's right. The sea is the main way of getting from one place to another during the summer months, and in the winter you could travel by skidoo or dog sled. In some ways, the winter is the easiest way to get from place to place. But it is very strange coming from a country where it is so easy to get around, really, where places are so connected, to go somewhere like that, where each community, in a sense, 
with its own island. The Greenlandic people believe that land belongs to all all of them. It's a collective, they're in a, a communal experience with each other. And one of the things that they have been quite criticised from or their cultural systems have been quite criticised is their hunting traditions. I know that they do kill a lot of sea animals, uh, whales and seals and so on. So how did you wrestle with that? I know, um, Malachi, you brought up one of the local politicians who said that, you know, other countries have failed to understand um, nature and our place within it and that the Greenlandic people see the killing of animals as part of um, natural living systems, part of the evolutionary experience of life. So their philosophy runs so so against the animal rights philosophy that predominates today. How did you understand it or were your views challenged in any way by this? My views were certainly challenged to a certain extent, yes. I mean, the contemporary ideas in Europe the kind of animal rights ideas are very much a, a sort of individualist way of looking at things. Animals are important because of their individual lives. And from that perspective, the killing of wild animals, of polar bears and, and seals and, and so on, can be a bit troubling for a, a lot of people. And, and what the Greenlanders say is that there's a there's a massive hypocrisy going on here because it, it's us in Europe and North America who are responsible for poisoning the oceans and poisoning the atmosphere on a mass scale. And all they're doing is killing to eat, which is what they've always done and what every other animal does, I suppose. One of the things that I found quite sad when I was reading through your chapter on um, Greenland was how the social um, disintegration that's affecting uh, Greenland today. You mentioned that there's a lot of teenage pregnancies, drug abuse, a lot of alcohol related social problems. And I think one social worker mentioned to you that in some ways that the pace of change and the pace of life has accelerated so much that they have moved from a very traditional way of life to modern life so very quickly that there has been no space, personal space for that type of transition. And it has really disrupted the culture in so many ways that people have turned to alcohol and drugs and so on as a coping mechanism because they're in this whole new reality now that they maybe cannot properly realise yet. That's right. I mean, in, in two, three generations, people in Greenland have gone from a very traditional way of life to kind of being forced into living in towns and trying to earn money rather than trying to find their own food. And so the whole society has been completely turned over and the roles that people had within that society have been overturned. And it has been too quick, really. People have not been able to deal with it particularly well. There are very large instances of of these problems, as you mentioned, and and that's not unique to Greenland. Of course, you find that in in other native peoples in North America and in Australia and so on. But it has been particularly quick, that change in Greenland. And so it does seem to be particularly acute there, those problems. Do you think it's too strong to say, Maliki, that in some ways modern life, technology, education and what we all see is the advancements in society have in some way become their greatest threat? Yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, it's difficult to see a satisfactory way forward for those people. 
some of the people I spoke to in Greenland were, were quite optimistic. And the thing that they pointed to as, as being, I suppose, that the savior for people was education. People needed to get better education, and then they would be able to create work and find work and, and so on. But there is a problem with that, which is that living somewhere like Greenland, the more education you get, the further away you are taken from your home. So you can go to primary school in your village, but to go to secondary school, you have to go to the bigger town up the coast. And then if you want to go to college, you have to go to the capital or to university, you have to go to Copenhagen. So every stage in that education, you're being taken further and further away from your home. And the idea that all of these people are then going to go back and create jobs within their communities, to me, is not very realistic. And so there is this kind of conflict or, or, or tension, I suppose, between these communities and the education system. And I don't see an easy way out of that. You write about the freedom that exists in the wild spaces of Canada and you, you create some beautiful visual pictures. I might compliment you on that. You met with a very interesting guy, Francoise Paulette. Can you tell me about him? He, he seems to be, have an extraordinary capacity and understanding of life. Yes, well, he was one of a, a group of First Nations people in Canada who several decades ago trained as lawyers because they saw that the only way that they were going to get justice for their people was through the legal system. But as well as having that education, he still is very much embedded within a, a kind of traditional life to the extent that it's still lived in Canada. So he's a, he's a very impressive character and quite an imposing character in some ways and a challenging person to speak to. But he he has a very strong and a very definite idea of of what is needed for the First Nations people there. He said something extraordinarily beautiful to you. He said, when I'm out on the river, I thank the river. And Dene culture is very much about that kind of spiritual relationship with the land. That is all about respect and gratitude and interdependence and interconnectedness. When you spent time there with him and some First Nations people, how did you understand the cultural genocide that has taken place of the First Nations people? Because there's so so much information out there. Some of it is very conflicting. But it is a very shameful history what has been done to the Dene people, isn't it? It is a very shameful history. And that's true across North America, of, of course. The difference perhaps in, in Canada is that there is not the sense that that situation has been resolved. In the United States, I think that white people tend to believe that that's been sorted out and dealt with. Whereas in Canada, I think people still understand that this is a process. It's still something that's happening now, dealing with the legacy of um, what was done to the First Nations people until quite recently. You write, no one can disconnect themselves entirely from the world. We are all dependent, always. And you write, if we fail to build placefulness and community, well, then we all risk being homeless. They're very strong words. So can you talk me through that? So it it seems to me that the disconnection from place that is the kind of predominant way of living within our society today 
is absolutely a problem for all kinds of reasons. I think that it does create social problems for people, and I think that it creates psychological problems. I think there's a sense that something is missing there in our disconnection from place. What is Alaska like? I've always wanted to visit there, and I can imagine the light is only superb. And I suppose a lot of us in a lot of different ways have a very romanticised view of Alaska and where where is a real Alaska because we have pictures from books and from history. But it's it's changed a lot and it's, there's a lot of tourists in Alaska now and you get a lot of kind of almost packaged tours, really. It's not the wilderness or certainly not. It's not as wild as it used to be. No, it's not. But Alaska is a huge, it's an enormous place and... A lot of it still is very, very wild. I mean, there are quite a lot of tourists, particularly around Anchorage and and the southern part of Alaska, but you don't need to go very far to escape from that and to feel that you are in a place where human beings are almost not welcome, I suppose. But speaking about the light, you mentioned the light. One of the interesting things about this trip for me was how familiar the light was in all of these places, because, of course, that's the thing that places at the same latitude share, is that day length is the same all along the 60th parallel. And the light, for that reason, can be very similar. And so that particular thing felt quite familiar in all of these places. You went fishing and you also went on a trek, which you got yourself involved with a bear. Um, And, you you know, you you quote, I think it was Jung, you mentioned uh, at some stage when he talks about how we've evolved in the world, that we lack the language to conceive the world and and that we've lost our instinct and our sense of reality. And you really wrestled with that when you came across this bear, didn't you? I think what I wrestled with was that feeling that as soon as I left civilization, I I suppose, in in quote marks, a car park and walked into the forest, I felt completely ignorant and therefore completely vulnerable. I didn't know how to deal with this place and I didn't know how to deal with the information, the, the things that I was seeing and hearing around me. And so, although I knew where I was going, I felt lost somehow. And and that was a very interesting and and quite frightening experience, actually. You write that fishing brings a change change relationship with time. And you say something on the lines of to fish is to be held in the heart of stillness in which nothing is still. I thought that was beautiful, very poetic. Did you fish a lot when you were there? And also, presumably, you fish a lot in your childhood. Did you, Maliki? I did fish a lot when I was growing up. I, di- I didn't fish very much on these journeys. That was perhaps the only time. But I have always found fishing to be a very interesting experience, partly for that reason to do with time, where you are imagining what is about to happen or hoping for what is about to happen. And yet you're absolutely focused on the present moment. And yet at the same time, your mind is wandering and thinking about the past and I and I find that more than perhaps anything else I, I do time becomes kind of wrapped up in a, in a very odd fascinating way when you are fishing. It's such an active but sublime discipline to have in life 
But I imagine that most people have something in their lives that they experience that and that understanding of time in a different way when things become still and when things uh, merge, if you know what I mean. Yeah, perhaps they do. I, that's that's the only one I have, but I'm, I'm sure there are others. <laughs>